Heavenly Father, we are, again, just grateful to be here today. We're thankful uh, for your loving kindness, which you always show us, and sometimes we, we tend to forget. Lord, be with us now as we open the word, and as the word is preached to us. May you open our eyes. May we see you right now as we go through your life once again. And may we never tire of your life, just seeing how you've just preached the gospel, how you've shown us so many things so far. And we just pray that, again, we see you once again through this text. Lord, soften our hearts now. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For some of us, uh, remember the last scene in the movie, The Wizard of Oz, where, where Dorothy claps her heels together, and she says these words, there's no place like home. Um, 
we'll find that, that Jesus is first rejected by his people in the first six verses. And then we'll see that he sends out his people, meaning the disciples. Do we get that? So he, he goes home to his people, but then he sends out his people, his disciples. Right? He's rejected, and he sends out his people. Two very different settings here. But if it all connects together, I hope. You know, I always tell Pastor Rob this. I said, you're just like a mad scientist who kind of plots, you know, what you want us to preach. And at first, I was like, you know, Rob, I probably just want to preach, you know, verses 1 to 6. And he's like, no, I think you should preach verses, you know, 1 through 13. And I was like, ah, I just want to preach 1 to 6. <laughs> and he says, no, you'll see me in full. And, you know, soon enough, I was like, you know, it makes so much sense now. I'm glad you told me to preach both. But you guys may not see it up there, but hopefully, again, it all connects together for us. But here's my aim this morning for all of us to see. My aim is this. They rejected Jesus, prepares his disciples to be sent out for ministry. He rejected Jesus, prepares his disciples to be sent out for ministry. For some of you who've been with, uh, who've been with us the past month, after witnessing uh, all of Jesus' miracles, it's hard to imagine that Jesus is actually being rejected once again. And I always say this. But as you go through the life of Christ, right, you're encouraged, but you're also frustrated by everyone around you. It always happens, right? Do you, do you guys sense that? Right? In one moment, you're like, yay, go Jesus. And the next moment, you're like, oh, not again. Those people. Yeah. You'll, you'll, you'll get that. So you get to the very end. You'll feel like that. You'll see that. You'll be frustrated. But hopefully, you'll be crazy again. You think after calming the storm, healing the woman of disease, raising someone from the dead, have a little bit more respect. But he doesn't. And we're going to see that right now. Which takes us to our first point this morning. First thing we see is that Jesus is rejected by his people. Jesus is rejected by his people. So Jesus leaves Capernaum, or the, Caper the Capernaum area, where he just raised someone from the dead. Okay? Now I know I say that nonchalantly, uh, but he just raised someone from the dead. I'm not sure what you guys did the past 24 hours. I ate a donut this morning for comparison. Jesus raised someone from the dead, okay? But this is Jesus. He goes from extraordinary to ordinary as he moves to the Gospels. Keep that in mind, extraordinary to ordinary. That's what Jesus does. That's Jesus. One moment, he's healing thousands of people. The next, he's praying quietly in the night. It's a great reminder for us that as we do great things for God, there will be times of quiet worship in the mundane. And so he goes about 20 miles southwest of Capernaum. I didn't bring my map. I usually have to show the map. But, um, and he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. His family, his childhood friends were probably there. Right? N Nazareth wasn't a huge place. Uh, some estimated that it was a town of less than 500 people at the time. Therefore, they know when a hometown boy, now an adult, would come and visit. And you'd be highly known if, if, if visitors were coming out of town. So this is Jesus' homecoming, so to speak. And the first thing that's revealed is that his people were, at first, amazed. They were amazed at Jesus. Right? He comes, here, here comes Jesus in verse 1. He's, he's coming with who? He's coming with his disciples. Now, take note of this. If, if Jesus had a following back then, if someone had a following back then, in this case, his disciples, that would identify Jesus or that person as a rabbi. Okay? 
So you can't just come with your, your homeboys or your posse and not get any street cred. Sorry, that's me talking my Vallejo talk. I don't know. I'll explain that to you later. Um, but what the, what the writer Mark is pointing out is that Jesus is, is a different person than when he left his hometown. Am I right? He's no longer a carpenter, but he's a rabbi with this great following. Right? He, he has a devoted following, his disciples. Next, we find that he started teaching in the synagogue. So read this. Right? Jesus wasn't forcing himself upon his people, okay? Meaning he didn't start walking the streets and, and start passing out the Old Testament or the Torah to other people, right? He wasn't, he wasn't Bible thumping everyone as he entered the town. What is Bible thumping? Um, he's, you know, I had a coworker who was an unbeliever, and uh, he would always talk about, you know, the Christians who would come in and start just thumping his head with the Bible, meaning they would just sort of force, you know, Christianity on this person. And it's not a bad thing, but again, there's a way to be righteous, but there's also there's a way to be obnoxious. And so we got to be very, very careful. Okay, so Jesus was not Bible thumping his neighbors, okay? He's too wise for that. He waited. He waited until the Sabbath to publicly minister to his hometown people. Right? He didn't preach on the street corners. He was just being a normal pastor. However, we find that it wasn't exactly a normal Sunday service for the people. Look at verse 2. It says, many who heard him were astonished. They were astonished. Some of us like Rod's preaching, Right? We enjoy Rod's preaching or we enjoy John Piper preaching or John MacArthur or insert your favorite preacher here. And sometimes you're amazed, but it doesn't compare to Jesus' preaching right? when he opens his mouth. For the people were astonished. In other words, they were amazed in what they were just witnessing, what they were witnessing. And the text tells us why, why they were so astonished. What does it say? It says his wisdom and mighty works. Look, Jesus was preaching with such knowledge and clarity, and let me add authority, that it was probably something they never heard by any rabbi before, let alone a carpenter. And here's the thing. We have to think through this, right? Jesus didn't leave Nazareth to go to rabbi school or seminary, right? Jesus is the seminary. And the people in Nazareth were recipients of the word himself. Not only that, but they were most likely hearing about all the miraculous things that he was doing in both the Jewish and the Gentile regions, right? Thousands have witnessed all these things, including his disciples, and word was spreading like wildfire. Remember, preaching, parables, and power. Everyone knew what Jesus was doing. It was no secret. Now, we, we normally assume that great preaching will bring great conviction, especially from Jesus himself, right? If Jesus were, Christ were preaching, you think the people would be so moved. Yet, and sadly, what we find here is that the people were not being convicted, but they were offended. The people were offended by Jesus. Look at verse three. And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. He was preaching and took offense. Friends, this is what a hardened heart looks like. 
A dead heart is not convicted by the gospel, but offended. It reminded me of Jesus' parable of the soils, right? The people heard the words sown along the path, but what happens? But Satan takes it away. He takes away the word. And, and so Mark places this story perfectly here. Right? You want to see the in the flesh parable? Well, it's happening right now. Satan is taking away the word. Here's what's happening. First, we find that they're calling him out, right? As they took great offense, as it says in verse three. But there's someone missing. Look at verse 3a. Who's missing? Who might that be? What does it say? Is not the carpenter the son of Mary? It's his dad, Joseph, his earthly father. Now, there are two conclusions as to why Mark specifically points this out to his audience. The first, it may, very, uh, very, it may be that Joseph had died if Jesus was in his 30s, and that could possibly be the case. However, sons were always identified by their fathers in that culture, regardless if they were dead or not. Therefore, what we find is that because they were offended, this might have been sort of a cheap shot at Jesus. Meaning they were implying that Jesus really has no father because they know that Mary gave birth to Jesus out of wedlock. In other words, they were were calling Jesus fatherless or an illegitimate child, right? There are other derogatory terms out there. So if you think about this really hard, they were insulting Jesus and Mary. And that hurts. Humanly speaking, that hurts. Jesus was perfect, and there's not a sinful, provoking thought in him to arouse such a response, unless it's a dead heart. Look, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I want you to understand how much our Savior was insulted, because you will be insulted as well. When people are offended by what you believe, you will be insulted. And I don't mean um, people saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, okay? That's not persecution. What I mean is that when people, people will come at you in whatever circumstance and say, I hate you and I hate what you believe in. Have you ever been a recipient of that? Because it hurts. And speaking personally, it especially hurts when it's someone that's close to you. But you look at Jesus, the community he once knew are now insulting him. Friends, people are going to hate you. People are going to hate your savior even more. Therefore, I want you to take courage as we look to our savior once again. And so we see this here. We see what, we see Jesus respond. You can imagine just a dejected Jesus here. Here's his response in verse four. And he said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. And really this is the modern day philosophical thought of familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. Meaning the better we know a person, the more we find fault with them. Please don't nudge your spouse at this moment. I don't mean that or your kids. But in other words, they thought they, they knew Jesus as a young man or, or a boy from Nazareth. But after seeing him teach, their, concu- their, their conclusion was hatred. 
people who were once close to Jesus within the community no longer appreciated or respected him. And so Jesus understands the Old Testament and the prophets that rejected him again and again, or that the prophets that were rejected again and again. So he's, this is what Jesus is saying. He's like, just like the prophets of old, your very own people, you're rejecting me and my message. The same thing you did with the prophets. Friends, is this you this morning? The more you know Jesus, the more you reject him or lose respect for him? Or are you loving him more? Are you adoring him and are you worshiping him? Meditate that on that as, as you go through Mark and as you begin to know Jesus even more. I mean, you think you know Jesus. Wait till we're done with Mark. So are you loving or are you hating him? Maybe that's a dinner conversation with your spouse tonight. Maybe it's a home group question. I don't know. But look, here's the thing. There's never a mediocre response to Jesus. No matter what you've heard out there, there's never a mediocre response to Jesus. You either want to kill him or you want to worship him. That's what happens in Mark. You either want to kill Jesus or you're going to worship him in the end. And so after hearing and seeing Jesus up close, the Nazarenes hated him. And it gets worse. Here's what happens next. Jesus marveled at the people's unbelief. I'm just taking that from the text. Jesus marveled at the people's unbelief. Verse six, right? He marveled because of their unbelief. Now, just imagine going to your favorite conference, whether it's Together for the Gospel, Gospel Coalition for Women or or whatnot, right? And all the heavy hitters are there in terms of speakers and preachers. And so you you bring your, your friend. And after hearing... Again, insert your favorite speaker there, John MacArthur, Alistair Bay, whoever it is. And as the conference ends and you're, you're chatting with your friend, right, you're amazed and blessed, but your friend says, it was okay. In fact, I hate them even more. What would your reaction be? You'd be like, what are you talking about? You just listened to some of the greatest speakers of our day. And that's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. Even in the presence of Jesus himself, they were filled with unbelief. They hated him even more. And it says he could not do any miracles there because of their unbelief. They looked at him and they didn't care. They didn't care he was Jesus. They had no faith. There's no faith present. And so if you recall the previous chapter, the woman um, with the disease and Jairus, right, people who had great faith, Mark is pointing out this stark contrast between the people with great faith in chapter 5 to the people here in Nazareth with no faith at all. Now, some of you might be asking, doesn't Jesus have the power regardless of what they believe? Well, I like what one commentary said. He says this, there's no limitation on his power, but his, but his purpose was to perform miracles in the presence of faith. In the presence of faith. There was no faith in Jesus from the people in Nazareth. Jesus' hometown was offended or ashamed by by him. Therefore, they did not believe. And, And again, that's a scary thought. It's a scary thought to think that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ himself was astonished by his own people's lack of faith. Right? They were unmoved as God was right in front of their face. I mean, have you ever wondered why he was called the man of sorrows, that song we just sang? 
Have you ever wondered why he's, why he's called this, this a sad person just walking around? Because he would see the hearts of men, the hearts of men who hate him, who reject him, after all he's done for them. That's why he's called the man of sorrows. This is a sad Jesus walking around town and people just unbelieving, unbe- exercising their unbelief toward him. You know, when, when I was 18, uh, I went to Europe and, and I visited France and Spain. And, and while in Paris, we took a trip to the Louvre. And many of you know that the Louvre has one of the world's most famous um, paintings there. It's called the Mona Lisa. And so, you know, I was so ready to see the Mona Lisa. I was, you know, I read about it. I learned its history, all that it stood for. Um, and then I went to go see it. And I don't know if it's like this today. It's been 15 years, right? So as I, as I was approaching the Mona Lisa, I, I, I stood behind the crowd. And you see this, this, this picture, and it's roped off, right, because you can't get too close to it. And there's this glass case around it. And then I looked, and finally the crowd kind of moved away, and I looked at it. And I was like, man, that's it? And it was just like this small painting, like, I don't know how big, it was like, like this. And I, I was sitting there, I was like, this is not amazing at all. <laughs> right? In the, in the end, I, I felt pretty discontent. And so I'm, my, my Spanish teacher, he was with us. His name was Mr. Morazon. And I said, you know, he asked me, he said, did you, did you like the painting? And I was like, no way. Like, let's go get a cheeseburger. I don't care about that painting anymore. Let's just go. And, and he, he asked me this question. He said, he said, J.D., is it the Mona Lisa's fault you're not amazed, or is it yours? Friends, it wasn't Jesus' fault that his hometown was not amazed. It was because of their hardened hearts that they were stiff-necked people. They didn't care. It's never Jesus' fault. He's the perfect Savior. They, they refused to connect the preaching, the parables, and the power to the carpenter-turned-rabbi and, and acknowledge him as something special as a son of God. They refuse to do that. Jesus is not the problem. And there are people who refuse to believe, just like the people of Nazareth. People will reject Jesus. But I believe that Jesus can soften a dead heart. And I want you to know that. I want you to know that Jesus died for your sins and that if you call out to him, he will hear your call. And so if you have a dead heart this morning, believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that he is Lord. So Jesus could not do anything else there. So what does the text say? He left. On to the next. What a homecoming for the Savior. And so we switch gears now. And it turns to the disciples. And so I had to think about this as I was preaching this together. I was like, what is Mark doing here? Why these two stories back to back? And I think what we find here is Jesus being the example for his disciples, right? He sets the example. And the example is this. This is how it's going to be like in the mission field. You're about to go. I'm going to send you out, and you're going to proclaim the gospel, and you're going to be rejected. And so what Jesus is doing here is saying, look, are you ready for your internship, disciples? You just saw what happened in my hometown. You're gathered here with me. This is what you're about to encounter. You're about to put into practice what you just learned from me. In other words, Jesus' homecoming was a precursor for the disciples. 
And so can you imagine the disciples just saying, man, if Jesus was rejected in his hometown, how much more are we going to be rejected? And so Jesus prepares and sends his disciple, and that takes us to our second and last point today. Jesus sends his people, and by meaning his people, his disciples, right? These are his real people. He thought he went to, or we thought he went to his people, but these are his real people, his, his disciples. Jesus left what he thought his people is, and now, like any, what any good pastor would do, he instructs them, okay? He, he already prepared them. The first five chapters, he's preparing them. If you remember back in chapter three, Jesus already made a formal calling to his disciples. He was kind of naming, he was creating his disciples. He was naming them one by one, right? He was creating this group of men to change the world upside down with the gospel. And so the first thing we find is that Jesus orders or sends them out two by two. Two by two. And, and, and the original there, it's, it's the duo, duo. And so G- Jesus is saying, look, go out two by two, dynamic duos, the original dynamic duo. I'm not, no, you're not going to get that joke. Anyways, um, but the reason for this, the reason for having, you know, the two by two go out is that, um, sorry, let me, let me back up here. Uh, the reason for this is that having two people go out and witness met the legal requi- requirement for authentic testimony for Old Testament law. Now, we don't necessarily have to follow these rules today, but it's certainly helpful. And, and so I'm just trying to understand Jesus and, and everything that's going on. There's so much wisdom here, okay? Because if you send out the disciples two by two, here's what's happening. There's accountability, and there's also there's encouragement going on, okay? Have, have you ever gone out on a mission trip by yourself? Like literally alone? It would be a little strange if you went by yourself, Right? Quite frankly, I don't think we recommend it here at Gateway. But, but what we're, what we're show, what's, what's, what's happening here, again, is that there's accountability and there's encouragement when people go out in pairs or, or when there's more than one person. And so Jesus is saying, look, here are the legal requirements, and I'm also I'm going to give you authority. I'm going to give you authority to cast out these demons, right? Now, if you read this, the way my mind works, I always think about someone as he sends out them two by two and there's 12 of them. Have you ever wondered about Judas? I have. I mean, is, is there ever a gospel account where it mentions that, you know, Peter heals this woman and Judas's power doesn't work that day? You don't ever read an account like that. So what's happening? Well, Judas was given power as well. Isn't that really strange? Now, I only bring this up because I, th- I think for us, it's something to, to kind of think about our own hearts, but also keeping each other accountable. You know, I'm, I'm always reminded by my seminary professors that there are students there who can sort of fake their way through seminary. There are unconverted people, students, through seminary, and by the end of seminary, sometimes they get converted. But also, people can fake their way through ministry. And so our professors always say, hey, just let me warn you, check your heart. Check your heart before you go into ministry, before you go into to seminary. Check your heart. And so we, we must be careful as a church to kind of think through these things as, as fellow co-laborers, as we minister side by side, serving one another, 
right? We need to keep each other accountable in ministry. We need to pray for each other. But more importantly, we need to know each other. We need to know who we're doing ministry with. We need to be in each other's lives. Because we know if one person could fake through ministry and be under Jesus' teaching, then anyone could fake through ministry. And And I'm saying this really with a sympathetic heart. I want to be very sensitive to this because it's a sad reality that people are faking their way through ministry. And so let me ask you, are you doing that? Jesus knows your heart. Judas had the power to preach and perform miracles, yet at the end of his life, he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Friends, encourage and pray for one another because we need accountability and encouragement. Next, we find Jesus give more instructions. Look at verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Right? And this is also a, a law for rabbis, but when someone would enter the temple courts, they would have to remove their shoes and money girdle. And so basically, all the ordinary things one would carry with them back then. And so the overlying reason, though, as we look in this text, the overlying reason for this would be that the disciples would have total dependence on Christ himself, right? Bring nothing with you because we want you to depend on Jesus Christ. And so the less you have, the more you're able to focus on the mission and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening here. Again, very practical, very ordinary of Jesus to give these instructions, We not only find Jesus preparing them to minister together and sacrificially, but as we just learned from Jesus, he prepares them for what? He prepares them for rejection. I'm sorry, I didn't put that together. First one together. But the second was that Jesus prepares his disciples for rejection. Again, very practical. As you minister to people and they welcome you into their home, home, as as was a custom back then, right? You're invited to stay. Right? When you go to people's home, you need to remain. That's what Jesus is saying. In other words, if you're ministering, don't be disrespectful and go to the embassy suites and get your hot shower and free hot breakfast with unlimited bacon and eggs. But remember your testimony. Remember your testimony. Stay with your people. Live among the people there. Don't go anywhere else. Share life with them. Do life with them. And one of the most precious times I have in, in Bolivia and also Ukraine, and also here, is just sitting around the table and just talking, right? Staying in people's houses. It's all very ordinary. Jesus is, is laying out all the basic guidelines for his ministers as he commissions them, right? This is his commissioning service to his disciples. I mean, do we get this? Do we get just the basic things? I know we could just sort of get lost, but just follow me here, okay? Then we go into verse 11. If any place will not receive you and will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. This is all very symbolic. Jesus is saying, as you minister, you're going to encounter both hospitality and hostility, right? We just went through Jesus being rejected, and so he, what he, here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, when you experience rejection, and you will, you need to leave. You need to leave. And because you're rejected, Jesus is saying, I want you to leave a warning. And here's the warning. 
the shaking the dust off your feet. That's the warning. It means that those who heard the message have a responsibility and a perspective judgment to what they just witnessed from the disciples. The shaking off the dust is like saying, people, you've been warned. And this is what you're rejecting. I'm going to shake the dust off my feet. It was a stern warning for them. What, they, what they just told them, you're saying, look, you're now responsible for. I've told you everything about Jesus Christ. You know, I, I experienced this just back in when I used to disciple young men um, in ministry and in a previous ministry. And I remember this, this young man who I, I would always be praying for. And we, we'd go to meet and, and just talk, and I would share the gospel over and over and over again. But he, he was very clear. He would say, you know what? I just don't believe in this. And over and over, he was rejecting the gospel. He wasn't rejecting me. He was rejecting the gospel message. And so he had to move away. And so, you know, I'd always say, hey, you know what? I told you everything I could tell you. I've prayed for you. I've cried for you. I laid it all out for you. And you're still rejecting him. So as you move away and as you think through these things, as you go through life, I want you to remember Jesus Christ and that he died for your sins and that he rose again because now you're responsible for this. I was shaking the dust off my feet. And sadly, friends, that's going to happen a lot in ministry. And it hurts. It really hurts. The last thing we find here is that the, the disciples were sent out to proclaim. The disciples were sent out to proclaim. The final two verses here summarize the disciples' mission. All right, they were to proclaim the coming gospel. But I think the important word here is repent. Repent. This was the same message John and Jesus um, preached in Mark 1, if you remember. Let me read to you Mark 1, verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, sins. And then fast forward to, to chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. At hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now remember, the people in Jesus' hometown refused to accept Jesus and repent of their sinfulness. They were blind. It was disciples' duty to tell the people to repent of their sins in light of the coming Messiah. Therefore, we need to understand that it's the mission for us as well. Okay, all of us here, we're called, we're prepared, and we're sent out. That's all of our mission. Not just pastors, it's for the whole church, called, prepared, and sent out. We're proclaiming the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ, the perfect one, died for our sins and rose again, that he was triumphant over all enemies so that we are restored to God and can have, ever, can have everlasting joy in him forever and ever. And in proclaiming the gospel, we're calling people to repentance. Now, I want, I want us to have a clear view of repentance because I think it helps us as we close out our text this morning. Now, some of you were at um, the Cornerstone class or Adult Sunday School class a couple weeks ago where we talked about repentance, right? And so repentance really is a change of mind. 
Okay, it means you're walking one way, and then all of a sudden you're just turning. It's a change of mind. Not, not because of the consequences of sin, but it's hating sin and loving Christ. That's repentance. You're turning. And so I have a couple um, quotes here I want to share with you. First with Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind, a very deep and practical character, which makes the, the, man, which makes the man love what he once hated, Christ, and hate what, 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 what once he loved, the world. J.I. Packer says this, Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. Lastly, John Piper writes, Repenting means experiencing a change of mind that now sees God as true... Oh, sorry. A repenting means... Repenting means experiencing a change of mind that now sees God as true and beautiful and worthy of all praise and all of our obedience. Jesus commissioned his disciples to go out and display him as the most satisfying and beautiful Messiah they've ever seen. In other words, the people wanted a king to save them, and Jesus gave them more than an earthly king would ever do. Let me say that again. Jesus, the people wanted a king, a Messiah to save them, and Jesus gave them more than an earthly king would ever do. He healed them, right? He raised them from the dead. He protected them from the storms. He loved and he preached to them. He ultimately died for them. The world saw that he was ugly, that he was a bloody lamb. Yet to us Christians, he's beautiful. There was this quote read at my wedding by my old pastor who, who married us. It's going to be eight years. And he, he read this quote to us in our marriage. And I always thought, like, why would you read this in our, in our you know, ceremony? And he says this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And it's something my, my wife and I come back to from time to time. It's sort of a mission to, to remind us of our mission here on earth. So my wife and I, we, we ask questions. What are we doing for Christ? Because that's the only thing that will last. Are we carrying out his mission to make his name known? Right? And so our marriage is like a ministry partnership, two by two. And I know we made a little disciple, maybe more. And I apologize if she's not acting like a little disciple now. Sorry, Ron. But listen, it's, it's not only in marriage, but it's right here, right here is a ministry partnership, two by two. All of us are calling, are being called, all of us are being prepared, and maybe you might be sent out one day. Right? We're not here to, to sort of hoard you and keep you here. We want to make sure that we're a disciple-making machine so that whether God calls you out, you'll be ready. You'll be ready to be on mission for Christ. And so are we proclaiming his name and calling people to repentance? Are we preparing for rejection? Church, thankfully we get to go through this together. Two by two, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. Now I don't want us to miss this. 
you know, Jesus is in fact coming home. He's in fact coming home. Or shall I say, he's going home. You see, Jesus is saying, I'm here, Nazareth. I'm going to the cross for you. The mission of the disciples is to tell the people that the king is going to die in order to take all those who repent and believe, listen, to his heavenly home. Jesus' homecoming goes through Calvary. Nazareth was not his homecoming. And Calvary will be the most glorious event in the history of the world. The bloody carpenter from Nazareth will turn into the beautiful king of the world. Therefore, the mission of the church is that we invite everyone to the heavenly homecoming where Jesus will be on display for everyone to worship him forever and ever. This was not his homecoming, dear friends. We will witness his homecoming. And so I think we need to be reminded of that, that life is short, that death is imminent, and our homecoming is near. Friends, there is no place like home. There is no place charge you, Gateway Bible Church, to go out and to proclaim the gospel, to be on mission, just like Jesus and his disciples, because only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, again, just grateful for this text. The reminder that you went home, yet you were rejected the man of sorrows. You saw the hearts of men and you were amazed at their unbelief. And so a lot of us cannot fathom just the human perspective of being rejected by your own people. Yet, Lord, it is such a great reminder that that was not your homecoming, but your homecoming is with the Heavenly Father above. And so maybe there are people here today who, are, who have rejected you. And so I pray, I plead with you today that if you've rejected Christ, that you come to him, that you believe in this gospel, that he died for your sins, that he could soften your heart, that he rose again, and that one day you will worship him forever and ever, and that he will bring you to his heavenly home. If that is you, think about Christ, ponder upon, upon Christ and his gospel. Lord, be with the church. Sometimes it is hard for us to, to remember the mission you have for us as a church body, to be side by side, to be working together. All of us experience pain. But Lord, in that pain, we need to remember you and we need to share you. Lord, remind us of your mission this week as we face our family, as we disciple our children, as we see our neighbors, as we, as we see our co-workers. We pray, Lord, that people will come to know you, even though we might get rejected. Give us that hope, O oh Lord, in the gospel. Be with us now. We love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.